everyone, and welcome to the Science and Policy Exchange podcast. My name is Sissy. I am Vivian Agube. I am Adal Malik. I am Nikita Sarining. And we are news researchers at Science and Policy Exchange, or SPE for short. We'll be bringing you all the latest science policy news from within Canada and around the world, as well as letting you know about upcoming policy events within the country. We've been working really hard to keep bringing you science policy news and stories, so we've spent the past few months revamping our efforts. We'll be starting off 2023 with an episode of archived interviews. Keep your eyes, or should I say ears, open in March for our new episodes. In this episode of Archived Interviews, we talked to Dylan Roskams Idris, Open Science Alliance Officer for the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute in Montreal, about what open science is and the importance of having it in our research ecosystem. We then chat with Emma Anderson, one of SPE's two public forum coordinators of 2022, about the Nutrition and Misinformation Forum held last June. Finally, we speak with Edward Irving, Director of Energy, Environment, and Natural Resources at the National Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada, or ENSER, about the Alliance Missions Grants that encourage advancing research in climate change and emissions reductions. So, without further ado, welcome to SPE Talks. Hello listeners, Uh, my name is Adil Malik and on behalf of SPE, I'd like to welcome our guest, Dylan Roskam's address. Dylan is an Alliance Officer for the Tenenbaum Open Science Institute associated with the Neuro at McGill University in Montreal. His work focuses on promoting open science practices in Canadian neuroscience research through knowledge and resource sharing. Thank you for being with us today, Dylan. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Right. Let's get straight into it. So for our audience who might not be familiar with the concept of open science, can you define it for us, please? Well, no, I can't define it for you because this is one of the questions that comes up all the time. And it's a whole constellation of different activities from open access to research papers the sharing of research data, the sharing of software that's used to analyze data, the sharing of research methods, all of the inputs and outputs. Um, One of the definitions that I like came from the federal roadmap for open science, and that's the sharing in a way that minimizes barriers of the inputs, outputs, and processes of science. It's really all about, if you want to zoom out a little bit, to the value layer, the value level, reducing the barriers to access and use all of the things that are produced by scientists and that are used by scientists to produce knowledge. If you want to zoom out again, it's about increasing the capacity for folks to participate in the social activity that we cause that we call science. So it's not just about reducing barriers by say, for example, not having restrictive copyright licenses or having open access to publications, things like sharing tutorials for how to do a particular type of experiment or analysis of data or something like that are all something that fits within the open science 
umbrella or as a dish on the open science buffet? No, thank you for clarifying that. I think at least for me, from a, a research background, and for many of us who are researchers, we often think of open science narrowly as access to uh, scientific literature and publications. But from what you just said, it almost sounds like an umbrella term that has so many components and so many facets to it. It is. And that's a perspective that exists widely throughout academia at all different levels. So thinking that open science is synonymous with open access, which is what we call having access free online to scholarship, the kinds of things that you'll see in nature or cell or the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences or something like that. But it is so much bigger than that. Yeah, for sure. I think for me, you know, especially in the last two years with the COVID-19 crisis, it seems like open science is now getting a lot of attention that it has long deserved. People have come to understand and appreciate the power of open science and accelerating research. We develop vaccines fairly quickly. And also in terms of epidemiology, understanding the epidemiology of the virus, um, you know, open science plays such a significant role. So what are your thoughts on, uh, you know, again, learning from from this crisis uh, and how, you know, open science can potentially uh, influence uh, government policy? Lots to unpack there. One, when it comes to COVID, you're right. It's been a huge boon for open science, at least in a couple of different ways. The global collaboration that we saw in terms of sharing virus genomes and sharing protocols for whether it's multiplying the virus or sequencing it or whatever have been fantastic or for developing tests. And even beyond that, best practices shared between hospitals when it comes to sourcing, making, using personal protective equipment and things like that. It's all part of this advantage that can be gained from the greater sharing of information in a way that other people don't have to pay for or register an account for or input a credit card for or something along those lines. Just as open as possible for other people to be able to access and use it. That being said, um, there (laughs) seems to have been a point at which the open philosophy broke down. So Hmm. When it came to sequencing the virus and trying to identify targets and collaborate globally on potentially therapeutic molecules or techniques or whatever, fantastic. But then when it came to sharing mainly intellectual property covered inventions with the rest of the world, so that, for example, India, which has one of the largest vaccine manufacturing industries in the world would be able to just manufacture and distribute their own vaccines rather than having to source and buy them from AstraZeneca or Moderna or Pfizer or whatever. That didn't get traction. And now we have less than 5% of the non-Western world fully vaccinated, which is pretty staggering. I mean, if you look at some of the underlying assumptions, even in what was just said, It's that there's this group of public users that are out there and then the group of providers that are up in the academia. And what we need to do is make sure that we're properly curating the stuff that trickles down out into the public. And that's 
that's a one-way road not a two-way street yeah and that one-way road i am certain is one of the reasons why there's a profound crisis in trust in science right now it's not that there are some you know priests of science and they have the access to the word that should be gone down there are all sorts of initiatives within citizen science and participatory science that actually enable people who are smart and capable and have their own micro expertise to participate in the scientific process and co-create truths rather than simply be some passive recipient of the words of wisdom that come from above. Yeah, and, and that's a very important point because uh, even the word public, uh, you know, as you as you said, sometimes, you know, uh, people who are outside a particular discipline can provide a completely different view at a complex problem that the quote-unquote totally. experts have been looking at it, but from a very narrow lens. But here comes an outsider, looks at a problem and is able to solve it. So that's a very, very good point. Um it's a famous quote from open source with enough eyeballs, any bug is trivial. Right. <laughs> what are your recommendations uh, for our listeners in terms of how to get involved uh, in the open science movement? For sure. But there is a kind of basic formula, no matter who you are, whether you're a member of the public, a trainee, a researcher in a more senior position. The basic formula is, you know, find the area that you're interested in. Let's say you're doing electrophysiology research in mice, or you have a cousin with a particular neurodegenerative disorder or something along those lines. Look online for keywords associated with that and open science or keyword associated with that and open research or open scholarship or something along those lines. I can almost guarantee you'll find something. So you'll find some form of initiative and then figure out how can you be a participant in the community that gets developed? Because that's one of the core elements of a new open science world. It's all about creating greater participation. And with greater participation, you get these interesting communities that spring up maybe within a particular institute, maybe across institutes within Canada, or maybe between different funding agencies and institutes, or maybe across international borders. Um, and there's almost always a way that you can contribute. When I have to remind myself about this, I, I don't code, for example, but there's all sorts of different pieces of open source software that are useful in science. So even for someone who doesn't code, if you find a piece of software that's particularly useful either to you or that you know is useful to someone who's doing work in the area, you can contribute by, for example, contributing to documentation. So that's contributing to the like descriptions of the software or the educational material about it or communications about it. There's always ways that you can contribute. And in fact, sometimes the non-expert contribution is the most useful because if those groups are trying to reach out to non-experts for engagement, you are a enthusiastic and voluntary user who's willing to share your experience and perspective on what might be most effective for reaching out to you. So find something that you're interested in, find the people who are already doing work in the open, figure out how to participate and contribute and to advocate for it. And the last thing I would say is just keep in mind that there's so much to do in the open science space that 
don't try to bite off more than you can chew. Don't burn yourself out on it. Make sure that you can have a concrete, solid contribution to a particular project without trying to eat the whole elephant. Because if it's going to become a reality, that reality is going to be made from the small, good faith, enthusiastic contributions of those who believe in open science across all different types of research. Yeah, some very uh, good and actionable advice there. So with that, I'd like to thank you, Dylan, for joining us today. Thank you so much for your time. That was very insightful. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much for being with us today, Emma. It's wonderful to have you here. Can you tell us about yourself? What's your role in organizing the public forums at SPE? And what are these public forums? For sure. Thank you so much for having me. So I've been a volunteer at Science and Policy Exchange for about two years. And since November of 2021, I've held the position of public forum coordinator, the executive position which oversees implementation of science policy exchanges, public forums. The public forums are flagship events that science policy exchange does every year. And they always revolve around a theme and specific um, policy issues where we want to basically convene experts on those issues that represent the social research and policy aspects of the issues to discuss what are these issues, what are some of the causes, and what are some of the solutions from both research standpoint as well as a policy standpoint. This year, the theme was related to food, and we had the Nutrition and Misinformation Forum this June. So the topic of that was really about what is misinformation related to nutrition? What is the social impacts of that? What does the research say about kind of the causes and the determinants of misinformation and nutrition? And what are some solutions from a policy standpoint, as well as solutions for individuals in terms of navigating misinformation, especially on the internet? The second uh, forum will be happening on October 4th. Anyone listening can register. It's free. And that will be about food security in Canada. Wonderful. That sounds really exciting. So what was the main goal behind this nutrition and misinformation? So food and dietary uh, choices are highly personal decisions. And often these are also impacted by culture which is great. However, with the advent of social media and kind of the increasing tendency for people to get information online, there's been increasing misinformation related to nutrition. You can think of, for example, fad diets, and there's even misinformation that is being perpetuated by corporations. A lot of people have heard of, for example, scandals related to the sugar and fat industries in the 20th century. Since nutrition is so highly linked to health and well-being, we wanted to look a bit deeper into this issue and see what are the social impacts of misinformation as it relates to nutrition, what kind of research there is, and then again, what are some policy solutions and recommendations for the future? 
we know that these days we have like you said food insecurity is another issue which is coming up for the next forum do you know if there is more information about it on the social media post chat spe website or where can the listeners find more information about it like for this event and the future events in spe Totally. So for the upcoming food security forum, you'll be able to find information about it on any of SPE social media's Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, our website as well as Facebook. As for the nutrition and misinformation forum, the recording of the forum if anyone's interested in learning more about what our expert panelists said is available on YouTube and we also are releasing a report that is basically summarizing what our expert panelists said and the key recommendations that they've made and that will be released hopefully by the end of October. Thank you so much Emma for your time and your all the information you provided for our listeners that's really helpful. Thank you so much. Just to know, because this is an archived interview, the Nutrition and Misinformation Forum has already occurred. However, we hope the interview with Emma gave you some insight into what SPE's public forums hope to achieve, and you can find the recordings for all of our 2022 public forums on our YouTube. Keep your eyes open on all the channels that Emma's mentioned, our YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, etc. for our 2023 public forums. You can find all the links to those channels in the podcast description. Can you tell us a little bit about um, Alliance Missions? Certainly. So last year we had done a special call that we entitled Alliance Missions and it had been focused on post-COVID economic recovery and exploiting opportunities that had emerged as a result of the pandemic. And the response to the previous call was quite substantial. So we decided that it would be good to do another call this year. Uh, but NSERF doesn't typically have um, a research mandate as such. And so we decided that to help inform the direction of the call that it would be good to work with other government departments and a strong focus of the most recent federal budget was climate change and climate change mitigation. And so we uh, started to work with Environment and Climate Change Canada to help uh, shape a potential call for proposals. So that's what we came up with. And it's timely because in addition to the budget activities, there was also uh, Climate Science 2050 and the Emissions Reduction Plan that was also put out by the government. And so we're tying, we're trying to tie into those particular initiatives. So these grants are for uh, project kind of grants. They're to set up collaborations between academic researchers and partner organizations, which could range from private sector not-for-profits through to uh, government kind of researchers. And these projects are being funded at between 100,000 and 500,000 annually for three years in duration. The purpose of the call is to look at anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions and to understand the mechanisms of these and to help uh, monitor and track them. I also found it very interesting that uh, there was a focus on early career researchers and on your description of the mission. And I was wondering why this particular interest in that group of uh, researchers? 
Uh, that's an excellent question. So yes, as you know, we have a specific uh, focus on early career researchers, which we have stated in the uh, program literature. Early career researchers and their career paths are recognized in NSERC uh, 2030, our upcoming strategic plan is uh, an area that is important to the future health of uh, science and engineering research in Canada. Early career researchers can often struggle to compete in an open competition against more established researchers because they have less of a track record and it's important to help promote their career development. The other thing is that this helps to ensure a continued talent pipeline as the as we go through time. And so consequently, by supporting early career researchers in these areas, it helps to establish and develop um, capacity at Canadian universities into the future. And this is obviously going to be uh, very important as we go forward because climate change and mitigation is a, is a big picture and continuing challenge. We'll move on by talking in the, in the last few minutes, talking a bit about some of the goals of the mission. What are your expectations for how results from the work will impact policy? That's a good question. When we set up the call, we didn't want to make it too specifically tied into big picture strategies. So we, we looked at the possibility of requiring that this inform government policy or strategy in a big picture sense, but that's hard to ensure when you're looking at individual research projects. But we set up the call to encourage participation of uh, government departments and policymakers and with a strong knowledge translation focus so that the results of the research will then filter to these stakeholders and will help to inform decision making. Uh, one of the things that is mentioned in the Climate Science 2050 synthesis is that because of the urgency of the climate change uh, problem, it's not really advisable to wait until all the science is finalized in order to start to use the results. So we're kind of expecting that if the right range of stakeholders are taking place or are involved in a project, that the results should translate relatively quickly, uh, recognizing the lead time for the projects and getting them rolling and so on. I would think that the earliest you could hope to start making use of any results would be a couple of years down the line. But again, it kind of depends on the focus of the individual projects and who the stakeholders are, be they industry or government or or whatever. Uh, in some cases, there might not be policymakers. It might be geared to industries, industry associations, not for profits. Uh, but having said that, by having these participants and informing them through research results, then they can take the research results and apply them to their own operations and their own practices and their own investments. And so there's also that aspect exclusive of the policymakers side of things. Yeah, that's a good point. So those are the questions that I had for you today. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with us. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for contacting us. The deadline for Alliance Missions Grants was November 22nd and has passed. A big thank you to Edward Irving for doing this interview with us, and we look forward to seeing all the climate technology developments that come from this support from NSERC.
And here's your update on upcoming events. The SPE team is currently organizing a cafe on food security for late March. The date will be announced soon on our social media channels, which you'll find in the podcast description. If you're interested in becoming more involved and potentially helping to write the policy brief, make sure to contact SPE to become a volunteer. The Canadian Science Policy Centre is also calling for volunteers. You can find the link to submit a volunteer application on their website, sciencepolicy.ca slash volunteer, which can also be found in the podcast description. The Journal of Science Policy and Governance and the Canadian Science Policy Centre are hosting a panel entitled Tools for Science Policy Education. How can the next generation advance the field of science policy? This event will take place on Friday, February 3rd at 10 a.m. Eastern with expert speakers who will provide multifaceted perspectives on the evolution of science policy education in Canada and the Americas. To register, you can go to the CSPC webpage linked in the description. The National Research Council of Canada and ACFAS have organized the 2023 symposium celebrating the success of women in STEM. This is a virtual event that will take place on February 9th and 10th and is free to attend. You can register on the NRC website linked in the podcast description. Finally, the Ottawa Science Policy Network will be launching an event for the National Graduate Finance Survey, which aims to gather information and advance the discussion on graduate sustainability and financial security. This event will be held on February 6th from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern and feature remarks by Dr. Stan Kutcher, amongst others. If you're interested in attending the event, you can register on Eventbrite. And as always, you'll find the link in the podcast description. And that's it from us. We are Science and Policy Exchange, or SPE for short, and we're a Montreal-based nonprofit organization aiming to foster the student voice and evidence-based decision-making and to bring together leading experts from academia, industry, and government to engage and inform students and the public on issues at the interface of science and policy. We're one of the few bilingual student-led initiatives directly engaging the local political scenes and effectively bridging the gap between academia, industry, and government leaders. And if you'd like to join us, we encourage you to visit our website at sp-exchange.ca and fill out the registration form in the Get Involved tab or send us an email. You can also find the link and email in the podcast description. If you have a particular science policy piece that you'd like us to feature in future episodes, please contact the news researchers at SPE or interact with us on social media using the hashtag SPE Talks. Thanks again, and until next time. Soundstripe.